De la patrulla de Minos de California. Weather headlines for today, yes. Welcome to the Revenue Generator Podcast. And I hear everything production. In this podcast, you'll hear how industry leaders integrate sales, marketing, product, and customer success into a single business unit with a common goal of optimizing their revenue cycle. We'll unearth how innovators integrate data, technology, people, and processes to expedite demand generation and increase recurring revenue. Sit back, tune in, and get ready to meet a member of the revenue generation. Here's the host of the Revenue Generator podcast, the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. Welcome to the Revenue Generator podcast, where we members of the Revenue Generation share solutions for how you can integrate your business to optimize revenue. I'm your host, Doug Bell, and today we're going to be talking about the way forward for B2B SaaS product-led growth strategies. Joining us is Mona Akmal, who is the CEO and co-founder at Falcon, which is an AI growth platform that helps go-to-market teams win more deals more efficiently to drive more revenue. And today, Mona and I are gonna discuss B2B product-led growth. Okay, here's my conversation with Mona Akmal, the CEO and co-founder at Falcon. Mona, welcome to the podcast. I'm gonna tell everybody that we just spent 10 minutes having a really interesting conversation about product-led growth, and we weren't recording. Key elements of podcasts <laughs> is to let other people hear your conversations. So I'll recap a little the beginning of what we talked about and really wanna dive right in and, and would say that I feel like this is a topic that's getting a lot more play it's becoming more and more the typical model for SaaS organizations in that it tends to be the more efficient model overall. And I'd really like to know from you, and we just had this chat a minute ago, but I'd really like to know, are there good examples of organizations that have embraced the PLG model and been successful with it? Thanks, Doug. I'll just look at the first 10 minutes as a warm-up round. It's great <laughs> to be here. So I'm a little bit biased because half of our founding team is from Dropbox. But to me, the two examples that pop up are one, Dropbox. Why I call them out is because they did the highest intensity version of product-led growth. First, they were doing product-led growth when it wasn't even a term that we understood or talked about. Second, they did product-led growth where they focused on solving a consumer problem and then having those consumers take the solution into their work lives and then building from there and learning how to sell into enterprises and mid-market companies. That's a very difficult thing to do. So I think they're a great example. The second example I have in mind is Figma. They're a fellow Greylock company, so also a little bit of bias there. But I think they built a phenomenal community of customers who loved the product and then brought it into the workplace and turned it into a B2B SaaS offering, which we know and love today. So those are two highlights. And you mentioned when we were chatting before, you mentioned that some of the built-in challenge for PLG is they ultimately get to a point where they must adopt maybe more standard B2B SaaS sales strategies. In other words, there's a point at which they really have to begin to think about breaking up some of those elements that in the past were sort of built into the overall strategy. And we talked about Atlassian as being an organization that had really done a great job, started with this idea of PLG, and then hit that wall and said their pride was not having sales. And so they're like, gee golly, we have to hire sales. We also talked about the fact that that's not an anti-sales motion or an anti-sales product strategy. But overall, at some point, you do hit this wall and you have to start thinking about breaking out sales. So as a former product person, and, and for those of you that are now lingering over LinkedIn and Mona's profile, you're going to see that she is a serial 
product leader, many, many years, a successful product leader. Does that inform the way that you think about PLG and the way you think about developing products and building them over time? And do you also think about that scale point where the sales organization is going to have to get more involved? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to break this up into a few key sections. I think PLG, as we understand it now, right, especially with OpenView and a bunch of other VCs writing a lot of great content about it, is a business model. I think there are many companies that don't have a PLG business model, but they are product-led in that the product leads the way. That is Falcon, for instance. We don't have a free trial or a demo because we are simply a product that requires too much data and too much security and compliance and privacy stuff for us to be a turnkey solution. However, the heart of Falcon is product because we are product founders. We believe that product leads the way. We are not selling people. We are selling software. So I think that there is the business model of PLG. There is the philosophy of being a product-based and product-led company and the culture, the internal culture that you build around that. And they are potentially pretty different things. And I think about both of those because I've seen actually very sales-oriented companies that have a PLG business model and very product-oriented companies that have no PLG model. And those can both exist. My two cents on this is going to be companies that are obsessed with building products that actually solve customer problems will always win at the end because there's a certain intellectual truth to adding value to your end user's work life every single day. You can make a deal by being a phenomenal seller, but if your product cannot deliver on the promises that you've made, what's going to happen? That customer is going to churn out. Okay, fine. You lock them in for an annual contract. Guess what? 365 days. It's not that long. They will churn out and then they'll tell 10 of their friends. And one of the reasons why I like product-based companies is they don't declare product market fit until they actually have a large customer base that can verify that the company is solving a problem in an elegant way that is durable. And that's when you're ready to really build a business. To me, that's the most exciting part of product-led growth. So it's interesting. In many ways, you're talking about, I mean, I agree with you, by the way, it, it is a business model, if you will, but there's a philosophy at play. Right. And, you know, I mentioned it, you mentioned it as well, slightly different kind of takes on it. But at the end of the day, it is about building beautiful products that meet the needs of your consumers in such a way that they're likely to be delighted by the product and continue to use and adopt the product. And I'm wondering from Falcon's standpoint, because, again, you're a former product person, long history of being a great product person, just hearing from you the tenets of PLG. So I'm wondering, do you feel like this business model morphs into a philosophy that starts driving organizations that at the end of the day are hybrids. In other words, maybe the PLG model is not built in how they work. In your case, you guys have too much data that needs to be integrated into the product, large data sets against which AI has to be able to understand. It's not a PLG-centric solution. Can't be. But philosophically, it could be a PLG-led organization. Is that really what we're talking about? That's exactly what we're talking about. And I think it all comes down to end-user centricity, Right. Not customer centricity, because in the B2B SaaS world, as we know, the buyers are different from potentially the end users, right? So for instance, in our case, our buyer is a CRO. Most CROs don't log into Falcon, and that's fine. But if you have to worship one God, which God do you worship, your buyer or your user? 
and product oriented companies will always bias towards creating value for users because the belief the philosophy is if you can make users happy they will create the internal momentum that will then handle all the internal objections and create the budget that's required for your buyer to to say yes i'm going to sign this 50k check for this product to be around and i think the second part of that philosophy and how it manifests is your relationship with your early customers and how deeply invested you are in their success and how deeply you understand their problems right so to me a true product oriented company the unit economics on it look bad when it first starts because you'll see the company has one customer success to five accounts even though their average contract value does not support that that's not because that's how it's going to be it's because the company is really trying to understand the problem that they need to solve for their customers right and the last part that i think you'll see in product led companies the philosophy of product led companies is highly data driven assessment of product market fit right so founders are very guilty of happy ears when it comes to product market fit because every investor wants to hear that you've hit product market fit I subscribe to the outreach founder uh, Manny's uh, philosophy which is until you've gotten the 10 million in ARR and you have over 500 customers you have not hit product market fit you're close to it but you're not there so i think that product oriented companies have the intellectual honesty and the data driven mindset to really say when they have hit product market fit and not declare it prematurely So it sounds like you're speaking from experience by the way when it comes to that misunderstanding by investors on unit economics when you're starting a PLG philosophy centered non-PLG company how do you help sort of guide those investors are you self-selecting investors that understand the delta Absolutely look I think investors are this has been said before but for a founder an investor is a catholic marriage you can never get out of it right So what's the point of getting married to someone based on a mismatch in ideology and and if they are scared and don't want to invest in you because you're unwilling to lie that you're at product market fit they're probably not the best catholic marriage to get into anyway right and so i've been very fortunate in that you know i'm an older founder right i started my company when i was 40 so i'm not desperate at the end of the day i think of myself always as the buyer whether i'm in an investor conversation or a customer conversation cuz like i'm not doing this for the money i'm not doing this because i need someone to tell me i'm a good person right and so i want to build this my way and people that can join us for the journey are welcome and people that have a different set of expectations on product market fit and need a lot of fake reassurance are probably not the best bet for us What about backwards compatibility for product organizations? Have you seen anybody pull that off successfully? You start as your traditional B2B SaaS development, you realize I've got to get into a new market. I'm going to give you a scenario that probably exists out there, but I'm going to get into a new market. I'm going to be competing against other PLG companies. Do you think you can launch a product that's PLG centric when you're not a PLG centric organization? Do you think it's possible? And there are examples of people that have done it. Absolutely it is very much possible I mean we do it every single day 
I think that, again, you need to have a strong engineering team. You need to understand how to do feature flags, right? Being able to turn capabilities on and off for select customers. You need, again, to have a close relationship with your customers to know which new capabilities you can pilot with customers, a small set of customers safely without making your entire customer population super upset with you because you rolled out a capability that breaks their existing workflows and whatnot. So I think that if you invest in a good feature flagging system, if you have a close relationship with early customers and you actually incentivize them to be your test bed for ideas, you can get very, very far in a non-PLG motion with rolling out new things, new capabilities, and not risking the health of the business or the health of your customer's business. So talk to me about Falcon's product philosophy, because I feel very much that, that what we're talking about at the end of the day is how you've been able to marry this idea of PLG for a non-PLG capable go-to-market, if you will, or product focus. So a uh, few things. So uh, just at a high level, Falcon is a go-to-market intelligence tool. And so we serve many gods. We help SDR teams be productive. We help sales team be productive. We bring sales and marketing teams closer together. We actually help a lot of our customers with their PLG motions, like help Redis Labs figure out which customers they should be cross-selling to, right? The way we embrace that ourselves is one, we have a product advisory council. These are our existing customers who are very invested in the success of Falcon because it has helped them be successful in their organizations. And like I said, you know, to me, the PLG philosophy starts with end user centricity, right? So we have our power end users as a part of our advisory council and we keep them very close. We discuss our product roadmap with them. Before any feature gets developed, we will mock it up and walk them through it and get their feedback ahead of time. I will actually create fake demos and show them the prospects before we ever build anything because it's the cheapest way to get signal that what you're building is valuable. And then we check in with them every week to see how things are landing for them and whether the feature actually solves the problem that we set out to solve. So it really comes down to user centricity. And for a non-PLG company, how we achieve that is with close customer relationships, product advisory council, product roadmap reviews, and high fidelity mocked up experiences and getting feedback on those. And then last, as I mentioned, feature flagging things on and off, testing, and then rolling out to our entire customer base features that we see high adoption for. Talk to me about end user centricity and the tracking metrics you use as the leader of the company to ensure that you're hitting those goals. And then I would love to hear a bit more about how you help investors make that transition in understanding those metrics. Yeah. So again, I think that for any product oriented company, you have to start with a set of hypotheses about what value you provide to your end users. And if like in our case, we have 10 potentially different end users that use the product for different jobs to be done, right? So our hypothesis can be something like, we help an SDR manager coach an SDR by spending one-tenth the time that they would normally. If that is a hypothesis, we then create value metrics with our product usage data and we use Amplitude to instrument our product to say what are potential metrics that 
represent this hypothesis. So a metric here could be, is the SDR manager logging into the page that has been built for one-on-one coaching on a weekly basis for rep? Now, if we see that our customers that are telling us they're really happy, but the value metrics that map to our hypothesis show that they're actually not doing anything for those metrics, it means one of two things. Either our customers being really nice and we have not created enough psychological safety for them to tell us how they really feel. Or second is our hypothesis is wrong. There is a different value metric that needs to be created. So my process is generally create a set of hypotheses, no more than 10, no less than two or three, build value metrics based on those hypotheses, then correlate the metric performance that you are seeing with what your customer is actually telling you. And if you have a large customer base, look at your renewals and look at your expansion metrics and correlate this value metric. So let's say we had high adoption of feature X, and that was our hypothesis. And for 80% of customers that had high adoption of feature X, they actually ended up renewing or expanding. That tells us that that value metric is strongly correlated with renewal, which is a proxy for this is the right value metric for us to bet on. So you start out with a hypothesis for your end user centricity driven metrics per persona. And then over time, determine whether or not those metrics are appropriate. This is an unfair question to ask, Mona, but I'm a podcast host. I get to ask these unfair questions. Is there an expectation that you have in terms of your ability to get to the right metrics? In other words, time or customer or end user volume. In other words, over an extended period of time, I'm going to get it with 100 customers. I'm going to get it or 1,000 users. Is there just a kind of a keystone to understanding how likely you are and how long it's going to take you to get there? Yeah, so that's where, you know, I'm an equally qualitative and quantitative person. So I don't exclusively rely on metrics because at the end of the day, if you have an advisory council of your hyper super users, you can just talk to them. And this is where I actually think a lot of product-led founders go wrong. They don't talk to their customers. They'd rather look at the metric because they're scared of talking to people because they're real people and they could say things that hurt our feelings, right? And so I think that if you're just looking at a quantitative way to figure out what are your value metrics that are leading indicators of product usage and engagement, you have to wait a really long time, especially as an early stage company, right? And the higher your average contract value, the longer it's going to take for you to figure that out. And the longer your contract times, the longer it's going to take you to figure that out, right? However, you can supplement that with qualitative analysis by talking to 20 customers that are in the same persona and seeing what patterns emerge. Final point I'll make on that is, Talking to a prospect, I am appalled by the lack of preparation that goes into those meetings. My sister used to be at BCG and she actually taught me how to interview people and ask deep questions. Because if you show up like a dummy asking them questions, how do you use the product today? Of course, they're going to make shit up, right? Ask them to show you. Tell them what meeting does this show up in? And then what decision do you make? And then how does that change your business? There are five questions beneath every question, top level question that you can ask to get to real insight about why your product is or is not useful. So really prepping for those meetings so you get qualitative insight 
because that's actually the strongest and fastest leading indicator to whether your product's delivering value or not. And user centricity. I think ultimately we should retitle the episode, Mon. I think that's really what we're talking about here. How do we use end user centricity and a qualitative and quantitative combination to deliver best possible product for those end users? And then listen in investors, ultimately revenue trails that. So be patient. It takes some time. Learned a ton today. Mona, thanks for spending some time with me on the podcast. Of course. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Okay. That wraps up this episode of the Revenue Generator Podcast. Thanks to Mona Akamai, CEO and co-founder of Falcon for joining us in part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow. Mona and I are going to dig in and talk about marketing influence and attribution. If you can't wait until our next episode and would like to learn more about Mona, you can find a link to her LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can contact her on Twitter where her handle is at Mona, M-O-N-A-A underscore A-A-A, or visit her company website at falcon.ai. Just one link on our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head over to revgenpod.com, where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, apply to be a speaker on the Revenue Generator podcast, or you can even share your revenue generation questions, which we'll answer live in the show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is at RevGenPod on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can contact me directly. My handle is Market Advocate. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a daily stream of RevGen strategies in your podcast feed, we'll publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app, and we'll be back in your feed in the next business day. Okay, that's all for today. But until next time, keep cranking because the revenue isn't going to generate itself.